All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we have the news as usual with me, Brittany Clinton-Sam, and we're also joined by Representative Gwen Moore of Wisconsin. I do think a lot of these challenges have a lot to do with making sure that the diversification that this election suggests that there ought to be, be made real. That that actually be reflected in the leadership. Now, the word this week is to remember that part of the battle is getting people elected into office. The other part is to make sure that they do what they got elected to do. So we should celebrate the wins. There were a lot of wins with this last midterm. Like people did incredible work. A lot of people voted. More people participated in politics than in a long time. Now that they're in office, we need to make sure that they show up to work every day and do the things that they said they were going to do. So when we think about what happens in January when the new Congress gets installed, when we think about the new committee appointments, your new mayors, your new state's attorneys, like getting them there was the first part of the battle. Holding them accountable is the rest of the work. And there are so many elected officials who are on our side who actually need us to keep the pressure so they actually have the cover to do the things they said they were gonna do. So if your person said they wanted to end bail, it's not enough for you to just have elected them. You need to keep raising holy hell while they're in office so that they even have the cover to do the things that they promised to do, the things that you asked them to do and demanded that they do. Let's go. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third. Aye, aye, aye. Boom. I was on time today. <laughs> and this is Dre <laughs> at D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. So we had some uh, some happenings happening over the weekend. Woo-woo, woo-woo. I know, right? I finally saw Hamilton. <laughs> she was gonna get that Hamilton in somehow, some way. <laughs> because I'm so obsessed. Oh my god, it's amazing. Brittany, what's your verdict? Was it did it live up to the hype? Was it better than the hype? I think it totally surpassed the hype. And frankly, I want like I was the problem with seeing it is that once you are on the other side of ignorance and you've seen it, then you want to see it over and over and over again, and you can't just like find it on iTunes. You can't just like pop in a DVD. So Reggie and I have been listening to the soundtrack over and over and over again all weekend and walking around and just turning to each other and saying, and Peggy, like we're the Skylar sisters. It's, it's been, it's really amazing. Truly. And while most people go to the theater and they get some, uh, a little bit of maybe some popcorn or some Skittles or some, some, some wine, if they're feeling fancy uh, at the show, you got, you got a different (laughs) sort of, sort of treat. Yeah. Than, than most people get the um the love of my life asked me to marry him on stage at Hamilton oh, after the snap. show was over. Oh. I mean, I thought that the biggest hey, surprise. The <laughs> I thought the biggest surprise was that we had better seats than Tom Brady, and I was like, "This is pretty dope." And then he was like, "We get to go backstage," and I was like, "What?" And then we're on stage taking a picture, and I turn around, and he was on one knee, and it was incredibly special and he knows how much I love musical theater so it was very thoughtful and I'm like I couldn't be more excited I mean I was already living a very full life uh, before I met him and so I'm grateful that two whole people were able to come together and I'm excited it's going down at the wedding and just keep me posted when you do the wedding rolls the rolls at the wedding just just uh, don't forget about us I mean listen I've had five grown adults ask if they could be the flower girl or basically say that they were going to be the flower girl and I was like that's interesting I have lots of children in my life but I promise not to I will not forget about you all you all are my brothers I'm very excited to celebrate with you all and our friends and family are we gonna be there no matter what whether I got an appointed role or not I'm gonna be up there 
What I really want for a wedding present, if the three of you all or all of you all listening could make this happen, I would really like Betsy DeVos to step down. <laughs> the best wedding. Like, <laughs> nobody has to give me any pots or pans or contribute to any honeymoon fund. If she can go, that's enough. Because the leak that I have seen on these new Title IX rules are disturbing as I don't know what. From the looks of it, there are going to be new rules around Title IX that will loosen the kind of reporting and investigation requirements that college campuses have have to do when there is sexual assault reported. Um, and I'm very, very worried about how unsafe college canvases are going to become once again for young people um, altogether and young women in particular if these rules actually go into effect. So if y'all can make that happen, I'd be much obliged. You know, one of the things, too, that's in the proposal is that it stipulates that cross-examination can now be done by a third party, such as a lawyer. And people are worried that in the Title IX hearings now that what will happen is that there'll be a two-tiered system where rich students will have these really extensive lawyers and people who are not rich will be really stuck as a part of the process. And that just doesn't happen currently. The thing that I'm mindful of is that it's a proposed regulation, so it has a 60-day public comment period. Uh, and the department is obligated to respond to the public comment. So I'm hopeful that enough people will push in thoughtful ways so that we can actually get more clarity and there can be some real back and forth with this administration that hopefully ends soon. So what that means is you all can make your voices heard and actually try to get me that wedding present. I got you. Baby J said that's what he's going to get. Listen, I already know Baby J is going to be like the most woke little boy I know. So Mm -hmm. I'm all about it. I'm just saying, if there is anybody else in the running for Ring Bear, we we got, (laughs) you know... Jay, Jay, ready. We stay, Boom. we stay training. Pew, pew. We're walking, and I already know he looks cute in a bow tie. You know. So listen, y'all. I know that we had some incredible wins on election day. Amendment four was passed. There are a record number of women going to Congress. There are a record number of women of color, Indigenous women, Black women, Latinas going to Congress, um, and it truly was an amazing day. But of course, we know that that doesn't mean that everything we wanted came true. In particular, there were three governor's races that I was paying close attention to, Ben Jealous, uh, Stacey Abrams, and Andrew Gillum. Two of those races extended beyond Election Day. And uh, since that time until now, we have seen both Andrew Gillum and Stacey Abrams say that they understand that their opponents are actually going to hold the seat. And I say that that way in particular because Stacey Abrams has not conceded. She didn't concede because she essentially said that her moral compass would not allow her to concede because concession would be admission that this was a fair election and it was not. And so I'm deeply grateful to people like Stacey for making sure that we maintain a moral consciousness about our elections. So as it stands right now, the gap between Brian Kemp the Republican governor-elect, and Stacey Abrams is about 18,000 votes. If she had been able to close that 18,000-vote gap, she would have been able to uh, pursue a runoff, which means that there would have had to be another election, a special election for governor in Georgia. But here's what we also know. As we talked about before on the podcast, there were 53,000 brand new voter registrations flagged. 70% of them were black. And they were flagged by Brian Kemp's office because, of course, he is or he was the secretary of state in Georgia overseeing all elections. Now, there were lawsuits that helped ensure that the majority of those registrations were actually uh, confirmed. But then you have the issue of getting that information out to those folks who submitted those registrations, which means that it's it's not kind of one-to-one where people will automatically be able to show up and um, vote again if they were in that 53,000. But there are far more than those 53,000 brand new registrations that we know were problematic. Since 2012, Brian Kemp's office has purged 1.4 million people from the voter rolls. 670,000 of those folks have been purged just since 2017 when he presumably was very active in running for governor. There were 214 polling places that were closed across the state state of Georgia. And just a week before the election, he announced without any provocation or seemingly any evidence that he was going to open up a hacking probe into Stacey Abrams' campaign. This means that Brian Kemp grossly abused his position as Secretary of State to benefit himself. He did not resign from the office of Secretary of State until after Election Day when it was looking like there may be a runoff or at least there was a recount. And so we know that the election in Georgia was deep 
deeply problematic. But this is not the only place where secretaries of state have actually been abusing their office. We know that Chris Kobach, who almost won the governor role in Kansas, um, didn't recuse himself uh, until very late in the game when there was a recount for his own primary race. We know that in Kentucky, Secretary of State Allison Grimes is under investigation because she was accused that she misused voter data. Uh, In Arizona, Secretary of State Michelle Reagan is being sued for allegedly failing to update voter registration information as required under the federal law. In fact, last week, we found out that Indiana Secretary of State allegedly removed at least 20,000 voters from the rolls using a method that was blocked by a federal judge last June. So there are abuses happening in the Secretary of State office across parties and across the country. There should be a rule across every single state that the Secretary of State can actually not run for office while they are actively overseeing their own election, or that we actually don't engage in partisan appointments and elections for the Secretary of State office. Whatever happens, we have to be vigilant as voters. 2020 is right around the corner. We have to make sure that we're supporting organizations like the National Voter Protection Action Fund, that we're looking to organizations like the ACLU and the NAACP LDF um, and the Lawyers Committee who are taking on these lawsuits in years when we're not even voting to make sure that when we do show up at the ballot box, that our voices can be heard and never be silenced. You know, there doesn't appear to be any sort of federal intervention or action to hold Brian Kemp accountable, other than what we saw the federal judge do with allowing those 53,000 people who were put on pending registration status to be able to sort of challenge that decision. Uh, But overall, we haven't seen any sort of large-scale effort from the federal government, at least, to say that this election was actually an illegitimate election, that these things that Brian Kemp did should not be done again, uh, or for any measures to be put in place to prevent that from happening. The good news is, uh, in addition to all of those opportunities to support organizations, to get out the vote, to address voter suppression writ large, there are also opportunities in runoff elections, uh, even in Georgia, uh, to replace the Secretary of State that used to be Brian Kemp with John Barrow, uh, who's running as the Democrat Uh, for the December 4th election there. Uh, So if he's elected to Secretary of State, he would then have the power to reverse some of those measures. He might be able to reinstate some of those folks who've been purged, uh, and he would be able to prevent further voter suppression from happening moving forward. So really important that Georgia voters turn out. Early voting is November 26th through 30th in Georgia, uh, and then election day is December 4th uh, to elect John Barrow uh, to be the next Secretary of State. Another thing I keep coming back to is the fact that Kemp was caught on tape at a campaign event saying that Stacey Abrams' voter turnout operation, quote, continues to concern us, especially if everybody uses and exercises their right to vote. And so we have on record the fact that none of this was unintentional, right? It's very clear that like what he was saying about the threat that voter turnout represented to his ability to be elected governor was 100% connected to his actions as Secretary of State, even though it was under the guise of preventing voter fraud. And Kemp's not the only person who's doing this. Just last week, we had Cindy Hyde-Smith, the senator in Mississippi, who's running against Mike Espy. If you're in Mississippi, please, please, please uh, make sure you get out to the polls and vote for Mike Espy. For many reasons, but among them is it's Cindy Hyde-Smith said uh, she was caught on tape at an event saying, quote, there are lots of liberal folks in those other schools that maybe we don't want to vote. Maybe we want to make it just a little more difficult. And I think that's a great idea. So again, we have another elected official, another member of the Republican Party, saying aloud what we know to be true, even when it's not said uh, as directly as, as we've caught them saying it in the past few weeks. But they recognize that the demographic landscape and the political landscape is changing. And the only means they have to prevent themselves from losing politically is to cheat. But lots of really important stuff to do legislatively, and I think that's one of the most important reasons that the Democratic Congress has put voting rights and automatic voter registration and things like that at the top of their priority list for the upcoming Congress. So the only things I add is that, you know, I'm reminded that Stacey Abrams did not concede. And what she said in her speech is important to just read from her voice. She says, I acknowledge that former Secretary of State Brian Kemp will be certified the victor in the 2018 gubernatorial elections. But to watch an elected official who claims to represent the people in the state baldly pin his hopes for election on the suppression of the people's democratic right to vote has been truly appalling. So let's be clear. This is not a speech of concession because concession means to acknowledge an action is right right or true or proper. As a woman of conscience and faith, I cannot concede that. 
And I love that framing that like, she's like, I get that I, I will not be the legal winner, but I will also not say that he's the legitimate winner. The other thing that goes under, that has gone underreported is that Nate Silver, who we know from 538, who is a pollster, one of the things that he has noted recently is that there's almost no precedent for the opposition party coming this close to matching the president's vote total from two years earlier. 60 million people turned out to vote for Dems in the midterms, and Trump only got 63 million votes total across the country. So one of the things to remember is that like the strategy is actually working. So for all of the haranguing that's happening, for all of the like resistance in it moving, and like you know people need to try new things, and it's like you, what the Dems need to do is keep fighting. That like people are mobilized. We can certainly mobilize them more. We definitely need to work on voter suppression. But the story is not that people aren't engaged. The story is not that people don't care. Sixty million people voting, like. Three million people shy of who elected the president is not insignificant. Uh, so remember that the system isn't designed to make you believe that you have power. Like, that's just not the way the system works. Uh, but what we're doing is effective. And, like, we made a lot of wins at the at the state level uh, with some races for governor uh, and certainly in the House. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stresses happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. 
This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. So my news is focused on California, in particular the wildfires that have been really all over the state uh, over the past several weeks, uh, destroying thousands and thousands of homes, uh, endangering thousands of lives. So we still don't know in in total how many people have died, uh, but it is sort of an unprecedented fire in its scale. Uh, And one of the things that's interesting about the fire, uh, first of all, we know that climate change is contributing to uh, this fire and to fires in general uh, becoming more severe in California. So California is getting hotter and drier than usual um, year over year. And so that's a contributing factor. Uh, But as we see sort of more and more fires in the state, uh, we also see the state using incarcerated workers as firefighters uh, to combat those fires. And so statewide, 3,700 people uh, who are incarcerated uh, are actively engaged in fighting the fires. Uh, So California uses inmate labor for firefighters uh, to an extent greater than any other state. Uh, And just to give you a sense of uh, what that means, so for example, in Los Angeles, 1,500 of the total 9,400 firefighters fighting the, the fires there uh, are actually inmates. So that's about a quarter of all of the firefighters uh, in the Los Angeles uh, area are actually incarcerated. Uh, and what we find out is that they make uh, only $2 a day plus $1 an hour uh, for risking their lives to do that work. Um, and in looking at some of the reporting on what happens sort of after folks are released, after engaging in this work, uh, what's clear is that the state still has a, a lot of work to do Uh, to make sure, first of all, that folks are paid fairly for the work that they're doing, uh, but also connecting folks to careers uh, after they're released from prison uh, in this industry. So uh, there are a couple of major barriers that have been cited that actually prevent folks after they're released, after doing this work, from from being uh, firefighters professionally moving forward. So first of all, there's a 10-year delay built in uh, in the ability to get an EMT license in the state. So if you are released from prison, you have to wait 10 years before you're eligible to get an EMT license, and an EMT license is a requirement to be a firefighter. Uh, And then many other sort of local uh, agencies uh, and firefighters uh, have actually, there are actually rules at the local level that prevent folks who have a felony conviction or have particular types of felony convictions from ever being a firefighter, from ever being hired. So, you know, big picture, this is a major equity issue, right, a major issue where you have so many workers in the state uh, risking their lives for almost no pay, being exploited by the state, and then not being connected to any type of uh, opportunity in that industry once they're being released. So I'm hopeful that this new uh, governor-elect, Gavin Newsom, and the new legislature, which will be supermajority Democratic, uh, when they reconvene in January, will actually get to work uh, to create pathways for folks to be employed uh, after release uh, and for them to be paid fairly while they're incarcerated. We often discuss the private industries that uh, take unfair advantage of the labor of people who are incarcerated. You talk about the coffee cups and the clothing items and all of the things that we use all the time and don't even think about just how cheaply they were made because we can essentially throw people away uh, and tell them that they have to do this for little to no money. And that is worrisome on its own, but it is particularly worrisome when you think about the fact that government agencies are also using that kind of labor. So from license plates to firefighters, we see the government essentially taking advantage of the rules that it makes for itself. If there's any theme for this week, it is about how the government continues to create rules that advantages itself. Um, and this is one of the many ways in which it does that. I also think it's really important for us to to interrogate the very notion of what constitutes as volunteering to fight in a fire. Uh, so some people will contend that that this is a choice that incarcerated people are making and no one is forcing them to do this dangerous work. But but this also, to that point, this has to constantly be put in the context of the reality of what incarceration is and the sort of subtle forms of coercion that the very social condition of incarceration creates. So if you're told that you can get time off of your sentence for fighting these fires and you've got a partner and kids and, other, and parents and other people back home who who need you and, and literally any time off of your sentence even even just a, a day is is time to that gets you closer to home you're going to be more likely to put yourself in danger in order to get closer to that 
But just because the social condition someone finds themselves in creates a certain set of incentives that to do otherwise dangerous work doesn't mean that these states and these departments of correction have the right to pay them as little as they do. Just because people uh, are desperate to earn any income does not mean that they should not be paid an income that is commensurate with the work that they are doing and that pays them uh, a wage of dignity and, and a wage that they can, can live off of whether or not they are incarcerated or not. But with that said, this isn't to say that incarcerated people don't have agency over the decisions that they're making, because they certainly do. But it is to say that, as is the case with this um, or any situation like this, that agency has to be understood in the sort of broader context of their co current social reality. And, and it also must be noted that incarcerated people and formerly incarcerated people, they, as as is the case with any group of people, are not a homogenous group. And so many have different ideas and conceptions of like what is you know, on the, with regard to their opinion on this. So a company you've probably never heard of, it's in New York State, it's called Corecraft. Corecraft is a $50 million industry and their employees make as little as 16 cents an hour. And Corecraft is actually the brand name for the Division of Correctional Industries, which is operated by the State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision, also known as DOCCS. Now, most of their operations are hidden behind prison walls. A 2014 report says that they employ approximately 2,100 inmates and 288 civilians in 14 facilities across the state. And they average about $48 million in sales annually. Now, they make everything from soap dispensers and city hall bathrooms to secure therapy desks. And the reason that this matters is that they have a near monopoly on products for local governments to use. So state law requires that local governments purchase commodities from Corecraft if it has a product that satisfies the form, function, and utility required. So the law essentially gives Corecraft, which is the brand name for prison slave labor, a monopoly on a whole range of products that the government has to buy. And you think about this stuff because guess who the single largest purchaser of Corecraft products is? New York City. New York City spends more than $15 million a year on Corecraft items. So the, the government is getting a deal on a whole host of things while people who are incarcerated are spending their time and labor and like not being uh, compensated in any capacity. So you know, this isn't something that's just unique to places like California. It's also in places that like, you know, like New York and New York City and New York State that like pride themselves on this progressivism. And that's just not, you know, the reality is so different than the rhetoric that people have. So there are a lot of solutions that we can think of. You know, people have entertained the idea of like a living wage and mandating that some of the money go into a savings account and that, you know, like... People incarcerated will get it upon get all of it upon release and they'll get some of it while they're incarcerated. Like, but none of the solutions should be we just like don't compensate people for the time and labor that they're putting in, especially when there is money. It's not like there's like a shortage of money happening around the country. It's like these industries are making not just a couple hundred thousand dollars, they're making millions upon millions of dollars. Yeah, and just to put that in perspective, it would cost less than one percent of California's Department of Corrections budget. Uh, to pay each and every one of uh, these incarcerated firefighters uh, to work full-time and make the same salary as an entry-level firefighter in the state. So the resources are you know, clearly within the purview of the state to provide, and it's choosing not to. 1% is pretty wild, Sam. Yes, actually, it's less than 1% that it would cost uh, of the total Department of Corrections budget in California to pay uh, each and every one of these incarcerated firefighters a fair wage for their work. That's a staggering number. On the subject of incarceration, so not as a matter of coincidence, Jeff Session was ousted only two weeks ago, and last week, a piece of criminal justice legislation known as the First Step Act was endorsed by President Trump, and on the White House side, largely led by Jared Kushner, who we should note, whose father, as has been extensively reported, served some time in prison himself, which makes us think about the role that proximity to a problem plays in how invested someone feels in it. But I think it is worth noting Jared Kushner's relationship to the issue of incarceration on a personal level and his advocacy for it on a political level. So the bill would end the practice of counting gun offenses for which the person has not yet been convicted as, as a prior that could add up to 25 years to a sentence. Uh, there's an expansion of accrued time and good behavior for early release for prisoners in state and federal custody. Uh, prisoners 
are to be housed now at facilities that are closer to their families uh, to allow for easier visitation, which we know uh, so much what we know about reducing recidivism is tied to the relationships that you maintain while you're in prison. It makes shorter sentences for crack cocaine as compared to uh, powder cocaine, and it makes that retroactive for a few thousand inmates. It increases the number of people eligible to sidestep mandatory minimum sentences, but not by a, a huge amount. It reduces the three strikes penalty from life to 25 years. It allows for more mentoring and education programs for people incarcerated. There's a prohibition on restraint of pregnant prisoners, so previously women who were giving birth could be shackled, and this would prevent that from happening. Uh, and there's some other stuff, but then on the not-so-great side, this legislation is not retroactive, with the exception of crack cocaine and powder cocaine. In that sense, it doesn't benefit a huge number of people in terms of reducing their sentences who are currently incarcerated. Some people are saying it releases between 7,000 and 10,000 incarcerated folks, which is less than 4% of the federal incarcerated population. And this also allows for people to be released earlier, but potentially under electronic supervision. So like an ankle bracelet that monitors where you are. And that's like one of those things that's tough because it's both good that someone's not in a cage, but also can become really concerning because it increases the scope of possible surveillance. And, and you have to think about like in low income communities that interact with the police often or interact with the criminal justice system often, if you have entire communities who have ankle bracelets because they are on probation or they're coming out of the system, it provides an opportunity to like monitor like an entire community of black and brown and poor people um, in ways that are, are really concerning. So, but all that's to say, this piece of legislation is uh, is a mixed bag, and I think we can recognize that the bill does some good things, and also acknowledge that it does not go nearly far enough. I think we can acknowledge that it affords some people. Uh, certain benefits and reprieve, but also kind of does so at the expense of some other incarcerated people. But I think we need to recognize the things that this bill does well and the things that it doesn't do well. And ultimately, regardless of what happens with this bill, keep pushing for, for legislation that is more inclusive and does not reify sort of existing false dichotomies between, for example, like violent and nonviolent offenders or um, people who are deserving of, of reprieve and empathy and people who are not. So one of the things that was particularly sort of egregious or, or shocking to me uh, was the projected impact of applying the Fair uh, Sentencing Act retroactively. Uh, so basically, under the Obama administration, one of the first things was change the crack cocaine disparity from 100 to 1. So if you're caught with the same amount of crack cocaine as sort of uh, powder cocaine, you get 100 times worse sentence. I changed that to 18 to 1, which is still ridiculous. Uh, and obviously we know and have talked about in the past how you know those decisions to make crack have a substantially higher punishment than powdered cocaine uh, had a sort of particular uh, racial bias in mind and, and racial bias in application in terms of who's impacted by that. Uh, but the projection for applying that retroactive, so when Obama signed the law, changing it to 18 to 1, it was not applied retroactively. So people who had already been sentenced under the 100 to 1 sentencing guidelines were actually continued to serve that sentence. And what this First Step Act would do was apply that retroactively. And that would actually make 3,000 federal prisoners uh, eligible for release. So there are 3,000 people in federal prison right now who are there because of that 100 to 1 crack cocaine disparity, still there today, uh, who would actually be able to, to be freed if that were reduced to 18 to 1. So that's just that's just wild to me. 3,000 people are still sitting in prison uh, because of that racist law uh, from decades ago that still hasn't been reformed. And I'm hopeful that that change alone will be able to go through and, and, and impact those 3,000 lives. One of the things that worries me is what often happens when interest convergence like that, uh, which brought us to this point, often just kind of packs up and goes home. So if you remember back to the Obama administration, it was not just Democrats, but a number of Republicans. And it was not just more progressive corporations, organizations, and activists who had been working on this, but also folks like the Koch brothers, who uh, obviously we have a lot of opinions about. They were at the table uh, on this criminal justice reform conversation. And so a lot of people will say that the reason why someone like Trump is even continuing to consider this and would endorse a bill like this is because that kind of interest convergence, those kind of that kind of bipartisan action was happening to lead to this point. But often, 
interest convergence will lead to what people will see as a big win, even though it's only incremental, and then everyone will just stop. And they will say, we got the First Step Act, and they will congratulate themselves and one another, and they'll hang a big banner, and they'll talk about it at galas. In the meantime, the continual work that needs to happen, the continual work that grassroots organizers and activists are pushing for is suddenly ignored because people then move on to another topic. And so I am worried that this will be abandoned like so many other things before. And I'm worried about the fact that there's just a real history of us seeing that we will take a first step and then not take the second or the third. There are a couple of things to be mindful of. One is that Congress is not like state legislatures in the sense that Congress entertains issues on like the four, five, 10 year cycle, not every year. So in your state house, there might be like an education bill every year or like a new funding bill around like public works or some new legislation around criminal justice reform, like states do the same issue often because that's just the nature of state legislatures. Congress does stuff in like the five, 10 years. So there are people who are worried that like this bill could be the only criminal justice bill we get for another five, 10 years or another two, three Congresses. And that if we can only get bills per issue once a decade, essentially, then we should make sure that the bill we get is actually like an incredible bill. What a lot of the criminal justice groups said for a long time was that they could actually do some of the things that they're trying to do legislatively. They could do the majority of them administratively, and the DOJ just wasn't interested in it. So one of the provisions of the bill would move people incarcerated like closer to the place they lived, for instance. And like the Department of Justice could already do that. Uh, or like not shackling women during childbirth, like the Department of Justice could actually already do that. Like the law doesn't need to change for that practice to change. The third thing that I think is interesting that I don't hear a lot of people talk about because it's like a little wonky is is the conversation about like what is funded and what is not funded. So in the last version of the bill, uh, the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights came out against it. And one of the things that they were saying is that like, Many people wouldn't even be eligible to earn credits for participating in rehabilitation or reentry programs, which is like a big part of this. And why wouldn't they be able to earn credits? One is that uh, they'd be ineligible based on like a risk assessment or a needs assessment. The second is that the warden could just deny it on their own. And the third is that the federal government is actually closing rehabilitation and reentry programs. So if you have like a if a hallmark of the bill is that people can participate in reentry programs while the Department of Justice is simultaneously closing those programs, this is something that just like seems really cool on paper and actually doesn't mean anything. So when we think about like any part of the legislation, like part of our work as organizers, as activists, as citizens is to actually like try and ask the questions about like, what's the what? Like, will this even work in practice, even if it works in theory? So my news, there was a study that I saw that like was really different to me that I hadn't seen before. And it's about fast food. So the study's called The More Money You Make, The More Fast Food You Eat. It's based on a CDC study. Uh, the percentage of adults who ate fast food rose with increasing income. About 32% of people who earn less than 130% of the federal poverty rate, which is about $32,000 for a family of four, ate fast food daily. But 42% of people above 355% of the poverty line, so like $112,000, were daily consumers too. So what they conclude is that people who make a lot of money are actually eating a lot of fast food more than anecdotally people believe. And they don't know why. So people have theorized that like it's not lack of money that drives fast food consumption. Some people have said that it is... Uh, like lack of time that people with high incomes like don't actually have time to make food, for instance, which is why they eat fast food. But with the study, the study's top line is that people with high incomes actually consume way more fast food than people think um, and that the consumption actually rose with increasing income. So I thought I'd just bring that here for us to talk about. So this was really fascinating and sort of counterintuitive uh, if you're familiar with sort of the literature on food deserts and lack of access to healthy foods. In general, you know, that literature uh, shows that to the extent that areas are lower income, they tend to have fewer sort of full service grocery stores, fewer access to healthy foods and more sort of unhealthy food options of which fast food is sort of a sort of a signature example of an unhealthy food option. Uh, but this is why it's really important to sort of interrogate the data and see, see what sort of the story is behind the data. So overall, while we see in this study 
it shows that you know folks who are of higher income tend to uh, eat more fast food. Uh, what it also shows that's interesting is that uh, black folks are more likely to eat fast food than any other racial group. So 42% of black folks in the survey reported eating uh, fast foods uh, frequently compared to 37% of white folks. And so that means, you know, while income appears to show that more, you know, folks who have more money uh, tend to eat more fast food, black folks also tend to eat fast food. And so how do we sort of reconcile those two? Uh, And one thing that is also interesting when you look at the other sort of body of literature out there is that the answer appears to be that the prevalence of fast food uh, restaurants is highly correlated with race, but not with income uh, or poverty. And so a study called Do Minority and Poor Neighborhoods Have Higher Access to Fast Food Restaurants in the United States? Uh, That's the name of the study. What it shows is that in looking at census block groups uh, of 95% of all uh, U.S. census block groups, so these are sort of neighborhood level uh, analyses, what they find is that the percent of black residents in those neighborhoods was significantly uh, correlated with the prevalence of fast food restaurants. Uh, And so you are closer to a fast food restaurant if you are in an area with more black residents. But you are not closer to a fast food restaurant uh, depending on income. So folks who are in lower income areas, they're not actually closer to fast food restaurants uh, unless you're in a low income area with a significant black population. Uh, So what this shows is that you know, while overall there's there tends to be you know this sort of surprising finding about folks who have higher income eating fast foods, uh, when you sort of disaggregate that data by race, what you find is actually what's going on is that fast food restaurants uh, are in closer proximity to Black people in particular, uh, and that that is true uh, regardless of income level. Yeah, I, I appreciate you bringing this here, Derek, because it's uh, it is a pretty counterintuitive study, I, and I, I admittedly have not sort of made my way through the methodology section yet. But because it's a survey, I I can imagine some sense of of what it might look like. But I guess for me, as I think about it, I'm I'm interested in what constitutes as fast food in the study. Like I think Chipotle, for example, like do those things count as fast food, even though the nature of like what that place is in terms of health is something very different than maybe a Burger King or a Wendy's or something like that. Um, so is that, I'd also be curious about what people are ordering from the fast food places. Um, and so I think there's still questions around like what sorts of foods people do or don't get when they, when they go to these places. And, and that would be interesting to see if, if those things could, could be disaggregated. This is certainly gives me an incentive to, um, go back and, and revisit the sort of broader literature around uh, food insecurity and, and, and things around this issue because um, this is not what I would think it would be, but I also, you know, have questions about what what things constitute as um, fast food uh, generally. You know, it's interesting because we keep having these conversations about things like fast food or who's buying the Jordans or, you know, who's buying the iPhones because we make these questions of morality um, when at the end of the day, it actually is not about an either or proposition. It's not about whether or not high income folks or low income folks are buying the most fast food. Clearly, people of all stripes are needing something that is accessible, affordable and quick. Um, And we should just be making sure that those options are healthy and stop assigning consumer choices to morality. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. 
the team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. And now my conversation with Congresswoman Gwen Moore from Wisconsin. Representative Moore, thank you so much today for joining us on Pod Save the People. I am absolutely excited to be here. I have a lot of questions. You know, the world seems to be careening very quickly out of control in so many ways, especially with Congress. A lot of big wins that just happened with the midterms. What should we expect? You know, I don't want people to to expect that there will be huge changes uh, that will be able to wave some magic wand. And I think that the new Congress will, uh, at a minimum, be able to put a check on these unbridled powers that the president has. And I don't mean powers simply to be obnoxious uh, as he's been, but powers to destroy the environment, powers to destroy the social safety net, uh, all of those programs under Social Security, which uh, Republicans have targeted, you know, continuing to diminish the role of the Consumer Financial Protection Agency, and and so on. So I do think that we're poised to stop some of the worst abuses of power. So you are on the House Committee on Financial Services and the Financial Services Subcommittee. I read that you are lobbying to be on the Ways and Means Committee. Can you just help us understand how y'all get put on committees? Why does it matter that you're on Ways and Means? Like, why? what does it even mean to lobby to be on the Ways and Means Committee? And, like, how does that impact the way that you, like, introduce legislation or the legislative process actually works at the member level? You know, the Ways and Means Committee is the oldest committee uh, uh, in Congress, standing committee. It's a committee that deals with taxes, also Social Security, all those programs under Social Security, uh, Medicare fall under the jurisdiction of the Ways and Means Committee, welfare reform, uh, workforce development funding, foster care, trade, uh, which is so important to labor unions. Uh, this is, you know, a health committee, and a big part of that, of course, is Medicare. Huge. Uh, responsibilities and the ability to raise revenue. It is so important. You know, the way things work in Congress is that the Budget Committee sort of sets the parameters for what each committee can do. And then the Ways and Means Committee is the, the actual committee that raises revenue and determines where the revenue will come from to pay for the many things that are authorized in other committees. I uh, belong on that committee. Uh, I belong on that committee uh, for a variety of reasons. And one reason is is it has jurisdiction over the welfare programs. And just so you know, in 1996, uh, I was a a member of the state legislature in Wisconsin. That's when then-Governor Tommy G. Thompson ushered in the idea of ending welfare as we know it cut welfare off in Wisconsin. And I vowed then to to do something about it as that poison, uh, as I call it, spread. And it was ultimately taken up in 1996 by then President Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich. Uh, and on a bipartisan basis, they ended the safety net for women and children. Now, you recently sponsored the Rise Out of Poverty Act. What would this do? And why did you sponsor this? You know, I hearken back to my own um, personal experience. Uh, I gave birth to my beautiful daughter at age 18, found myself uh, on welfare as an adult, and was able through educational opportunity to work my way uh, out of poverty. That 
ability to do that has been foreclosed with the current TANF structure. It was an entitlement program. It was a program that said if you were eligible based on your inability to take care of your kids, you could access uh, Medicaid, you could access uh, monthly benefits, that yes, there was some reporting involved with trying to make sure that you had some sort of engagement, but the primary focus was to intervene and interrupt the poverty that uh, that your family was experiencing. This program has evolved or devolved, I would say, into a program that strictly tries to focus on uh, matching a parent's ability to work with the amount of benefits that they'll receive. And that too often uh, mires the child in poverty, uh, subjects children to homelessness and hunger, uh, and even when those parents make great efforts to work, a minimum wage job does not meet their needs to, say, take care of three kids, pay daycare, provide transportation costs, uh, and they still find themselves in deep poverty. And the current TANF program and its benefits sort of ignores that. So I would want to insert into the statutes a statement of purpose that the intent of the TANF program ought to be to ameliorate child poverty as its primary purpose. Uh, Secondly, my bill would index the welfare benefit and and make it commensurate with, with 2019 standards versus the 1996 figure at which it has been stalled. This is a real problem when you consider less than one-fourth of the people who are living in extreme poverty are able to access the program simply because there just aren't that many funds. Whereas back in the days of AFDC, about 68 families out of 100 who were poor was able to access the benefits under the program. The bill calls for a maximum benefit of five years that people are eligible for welfare. And, of course, how does that work in a, in a capitalist, counter-cyclical economy? If, if there's a 10% unemployment rate in your rural area or your town because some big factory has left town, for example, uh, and you have been on the program for five years uh, at some previous time in your life and you now need benefits because you find yourself with a young child— you would be artificially barred from accessing the program's benefits because you had been on five years. And we say that that makes no sense, that this provision should um, reflect uh, the actual market uh, conditions of the area. What I would do in my bill is to take away sort of the artificial time limits uh, and constrictions that are in the bill. Um, The program, uh, in my estimation, would work much more effectively if we were to guarantee child care for every TANF work-eligible recipient. And and an extremely important part of my bill would eliminate the full family sanctions and lifetime sanctions uh, that some states have imposed on individuals. You know, there have been individuals who've missed appointments with their caseworker, Uh, been late, and they sanction the whole family. They take the benefit from from everyone. Uh, So my bill would reform uh, that provision. And last, uh, but certainly not least, it would require states to make provisions for those uh, women primarily, but those families afflicted with domestic violence and, and, and other factors associated with domestic violence and displacement that would prevent them from meeting uh, the so-called work requirements. What do you say to people who who say that there should be a five-year maximum on when you can receive cash assistance or who do believe that there should be work requirements and, and think that this is just giving money to to people who should be working harder? What do you say to those people? I'm sure some of your colleagues believe that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I do remind people that this bill passed on a bipartisan basis. So it's not just Republicans who have bought into the whole Reagan notion that there are welfare queens out there really targeting uh, black women, you know, and exaggerating uh, welfare fraud. 
uh, saying that there was this mythical woman called the Welfare Queen who had 80 names and 30 addresses, and she had $150,000 in income from uh, direct payment programs, that uh, she was uh, received Medicaid and food stamps, uh, now called SNAP. And many Americans bought into this. You know, what we have done, DeRay, is we have not addressed, you know, the lack of wages rising uh, for the last 30 years. We've had flat wages. We've had extreme income inequality. We've had folk displaced because of uh, industrial devolution and, and the mismatch in skill sets and, and displacement with technology. And the response to this has not been to increase people's skills, but to just deride uh, poor people uh, and say that somehow their character is just flawed if they're poor and ignore all of the other market forces that have taken place to really increase income inequality. So income inequality is a structural problem in our capitalist society. And the only thing that can mitigate it is to have safety net programs to prevent people from falling into deep, deep poverty. People can't afford health care. They have a wage that is flat. There is absolutely no two-bedroom apartment anywhere in America that you can afford off of a minimum wage job. And, and rather than to, to take these issues on, it is so much easier to just demonize the poor. In 2016, you were elected as the whip of the Congressional Black Caucus. What does that mean? Like, what does that involve? Well, the Congressional Black Caucus has always been known as the conscience of the Congress. We represent an awful lot of Americans, not all of whom are African-Americans. But we represent rural areas, urban areas, suburban areas, uh, where people uh, look to us as the conscience of the Congress to make sure that their voting rights are protected, to make sure that there's access to health care. Uh, we represent a constituency that uh, they're not all looking for handouts, but there are people who think that, that they need a fair deal, an opportunity to go to school and not be mired in debt, and that every human being should enjoy the dignity of having uh, a decent nutritional meal and not have to choose between buying medicine and buying food. And we, as a Congressional Black Caucus, and we hail from different areas, different regions. One of our new members is a, uh, a Somali woman who's also a Muslim. We all agree, you know, on this. Now, as a whip, uh, it's my job to really inform the body about votes um, that we've all agreed upon, about the consensus that we've reached, and to reach out and make sure that uh, in our messaging that we stand together. This is a big race for Wisconsin that just came up, the Wisconsin governor's race. You know, Tony Evers won in a way that people didn't necessarily think was going to happen. What do you make of the of how the gubernatorial election gives us a, a perspective on what might be coming in Wisconsin? I, I'll just I'll just have to tell you that uh, that getting Tony Evers and, and Mandela Barnes elected uh, was like one of my highest priorities during this past campaign season. Up until this time, I had been the only person who had ever been able to say I had beat Scott Walker uh, in an election cycle. So I'm glad to rid myself of that moniker. I mean, he was so horrible uh, as a governor, and I don't think this podcast is long enough to go into all of his sins. <laughs> but let me say, uh, it was neck and neck. Tony Evers was down. And when uh, those last votes, 41,000 votes, uh, absentee ballots, uh, in-person uh, voting occurred because we were able to preserve, you know, uh, souls to the polls and other voting rights. When those 41,000 votes came in and over 65 percent of them went to Tony Evers from the city of Milwaukee, the city where I live, I, I knew that we had this one in the bag. Milwaukee uh, showed up. 
Unfortunately, uh, two years ago, we had a drop of about 40,000 people in Milwaukee County who had voted. So we were able to inspire those voters to come out um, uncustomarily in a midterm to vote. Uh, We worked really, really hard, and I think that this means a lot for 2020 in terms of being able—first of all, we have a governor— so that uh, he'll have his hands in the redistricting process. You know, Wisconsin has suffered tremendously uh, from gerrymandering. We have just recently had a a case, Gill versus Whitford, uh, where we sued based on the plethora of votes that are Democratic votes, uh, but, but they're not registering because of the gerrymander. We have two-thirds of our state assembly is Republican, where, you know, over half of our voters in the state vote Democratic because of gerrymandering. So I think we're, we're in a good position, first of all, to reverse that, uh, that representational gap. Secondly, our state did not take the Medicaid expansion And, you know, that has really cost our state a lot in terms of the numbers of Wisconsinites that could be covered. We've got two and a half million people in our state who have pre-existing conditions who are at risk of losing uh, that coverage. And, of course, having having a governor uh, who has prioritized health care, prioritized education, uh, we we could see some turnaround uh, in those institutions. And... You know, in the news right now, there's a lot of conversation about Pelosi and and her role potentially uh, being challenged. Where do you stand on what's happening with Pelosi right now? Well, I think that our majority is growing every day. Of course, we need 218 votes. And uh, I think that this is all going to work out. I I do think a lot of these challenges have a lot to do with conversations that people want to have about making sure that the diversification that this election suggests that there ought to be, be made real. And not just some platitudes around how many LGBTQ people have been elected or how many black women, you know, were the base of our party and, and, and led us to this victory and how many progressives, but that that actually be reflected in the leadership. Uh, and so I do think that this is a pause you know, I've I've heard uh, some of the critics make the argument, you know, that we've got to take some stuff seriously, like gun control, not uh, trying to figure out and just calculate what the Republicans will or will not make hay of, that we have to really take a deep dive into some of the issues that brought people to the table and, 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 and really inspired them to run. So I do think it's going to work out. My guess is that Nancy Pelosi will be elected uh, as speaker. You know, uh, one of the things that I find so amazing, uh, just to, it gives me a chuckle, is that the Republicans have been very successful in framing some of our colleagues, you know, getting them to, to say, I absolutely won't vote for Nancy, and now they're stuck that they have framed us with their frame. Of course they don't like Nancy Pelosi. She's been effective, uh, you know, barring none, male or, well, there have been no other females uh, who have been speaker, barring none. She has been effective as a leader, as a strategist, as a fundraiser. And so you got the Republicans running commercials talking about how awful Nancy is. We want to be in charge for longer than two years. And I think we have a lot of talented new people, a lot of talented, energetic young people. And I think that uh, Nancy would be very, very happy to pass that gavel on at some point in the near future. But now is the time for us to uh, play the strongest hand we can. And also recently in the news, there's a picture of the Wisconsin teenage boy smiling, wearing suits, and giving the Nazi salute that I'm sure you saw. What do we make of that? It seems like in some ways white supremacy is just like not even hiding anymore. It's on full display. And that picture was one where you were like, wow, like what is – are these kids really giving a Nazi salute at the at what seems like a celebration? Uh, what do you make of that? Well, I think this is a teachable moment. I, I do think – that it's really easy to start talking about suspending the kids. But I think 
that uh, even as 17, 18-year-old seniors, this is an opportunity to give them some experience and to teach them about the Holocaust and to teach them about racism and the impact that it has had. I don't take it for granted that these young people have heard about the four little girls who were murdered uh, in Alabama. I, I, I don't... I don't necessarily know that they know the history. They put it on a website that uh, was called Parody. And I don't think that their brain development suggests to me that we ought to write them off as white supremacists that uh, don't deserve the intervention. I'd be very curious as to what they're hearing at home. This is a teachable moment. As we come to a close, what do you say to people who are losing hope, who say, they're like, you know, we voted, we've elected people in before, we've gone to the meetings, we emailed, we called, and like, we never really got the change that we wanted, but we participate just because we participate. What do you say to those people? You know, I say, you know, you have to stand up. It's your time. You know, I I was 16 when Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed, and uh you know, I was president of the student council and was at, at my high school, vice president of the Wisconsin Association of Student Council. I was a student leader. I started an organization called Black Organized Youth. And the struggle continues. And, you know, you don't get a chance to say, I'm not going to be in the struggle or in the fight because you're going to have children and children's children. I mean, we laid the foundation And it's every generation's obligation to lay the trail and to cut the path and keep those doors, kick those doors in. You know, before me, there was a Shirley Chisholm, you know, and before Shirley Chisholm, you know, there was a Sojourner Truth. I mean, we don't get to sit down and say, oh, gee, they didn't do it right. Every generation has an obligation to step up. Welcome to the struggle. <laughs> and what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? You know, the, the advice that I have is, is that you got to keep your head to the plow. You got to keep moving forward, keeping moving it forward. And I mean, that is the advice that I've had. Always look forward. And I'm excited about the millennials and, and the generation's years. I'm excited about their energy. I see myself in them. And so, so on a day when I feel a little bit tired, <laughs> on a day when, you know, my arthritis kicks in, <laughs> I am encouraged to know that the stuff I care about is going to be continued. And where can people go to stay attuned to what you're doing and to follow your work? Twitter. Rip Gwen Moore. Boom. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod to the People. Can't wait to uh, have you back, and we will keep following what's going on with you. Sounds like a plan. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod to the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Baby, baby, baby.